Asia Pacific currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest、uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at nine o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Link. Two minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. This is Asia Pacific Currents. I'm Giselle Hannah. I'm James Barry. And I'm Pierre Morrow, and welcome to another program in lockdown number five here <laughs> in Melbourne.、Uh, we're getting quite used to them,、uh, really, aren't we all? Yeah, I, I mean, secretly, I prefer them because then I can just <laughs> hibernate at home. But I do know, listeners, that for many, many of you, especially those of you that are casual workers, this is actually a very economically devastating time for for you. So、um, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. That's right. That's right. And、um, and of course you're listening to 3CR Radio, your favourite community radio station. And thanks to any for another interesting program of Solidarity Breakfast. And that, that very nice music which we had to stop was actually、um, very long piece by the John Butler Trio、uh, called Ocean.、Um, although I couldn't hear any trio in there, that was just very nice music. So that was that was nice. And of course,、uh, Asia Pacific Currents is brought to you every week by Australia Asia Worker Links. That's right. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the web or the w's dot a a w l dot org dot a u. We're on Facebook and Twitter, so look us up. Just do a search for a a w l. We continue to post news and current affairs from the Asia Pacific region to those social media platforms. That's right, and、uh, it's just on、uh, two past nine o'clock. Your three C R radio. Now we do. Have an interview.、Um, un- unlike last week, we do have an interview for last you. Last week was、second. your failure, Pierre, not mine. I'm just going to refuse to take responsibility for that.、Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> Giselle, there is a podcast of last week's program where you said something different. So、um, <laughs> history does remain. So anyway,、uh, we'll just let it slide. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, today on the show, I mean,、uh, listeners. Know that a couple of weeks ago, right at the start of July, was NADOC week, and、um, during that week, a coronial inquest commenced and concluded in relation to the death of Raymond Noel、uh, Thomas. He was an Aboriginal man, a, a Gunai man,、um, who died as a result of a police pursuit.、Uh, so it took some effort for the Aboriginal Legal Service and the family of.、Um, Ray Thomas to to convince the coroner's court that this was a death in custody, but having succeeded in that,、uh, the the inquest was heard, and we're going to speak to Ray's cousin Tarnine Onus Williams about that inquest, and so that's in the second part of the show. And of course, we have to say that there might be a couple of little dead bits of dead air because we do have a bit of technical, a different technical hitch possibly this week here with some of the equipment. But we won't bore you with the details. But we are going to try and circumvent that. But the, you might just have to bear with us, and it might not be. All my fault, Giselle. <laughs> It's going to be entirely your fault, yeah. But it is time for news from around the region. Another hospital fire tragedy in Iraq. Last Monday, a fire tore through a coronavirus ward at a hospital in Nasiriya in southern Iraq, killing 92 people and injuring more than 100、uh, between patients, family members, and workers. This is the second major fire disaster that has hit a hospital in Iraq in the last three months. The previous one being in April in Baghdad. 
were were over over several people were killed. Similarly, this fire was also started by a faulty electrical wiring that caused an oxygen tank to explode. Activists accused the government for these tragedies due to the widespread corruption, mismanagement and neglect that has become entrenched in Iraq. As to highlight the difficulties of fighting these issues, last weekend, an activist and investigative journalist was abducted in broad daylight and then found semi-conscious, dumped on a Baghdad roadside the day after with multiple injuries to his body. And uh, tragedy still continues among workers where in China the collapse of a tunnel has trapped several workers. On Thursday of this week, hundreds, in fact, of workers had to flee when an underground highway tunnel in Zhuhai, Guangdong province, um, where that tunnel that they were constructing began to fill with water. Unfortunately, 14 workers weren't able to make it out and they may be trapped up to one kilometre inside the tunnel. This, unfortunately, is not the first major incident at this work site. In March, two workers were killed in the same tunnel when a wall caved in and they were struck by falling stones. Underground accidents are still way too common in China. In April and May of this year, we reported on the 21 trapped coal miners in the northwest China's Xinjiang region. This incident was also due to uncontrolled flooding. And all of this, of course, could be prevented. We we have the engineering expertise to prevent um, this. It's just... It, it takes a little bit off the profit margin um, and, and actually that is why these workers' lives are um, expendable for profits. That's right. Very, very, very true, very true and unfortunate. Uh, we now go to Indonesia where Indonesia has, um, has now become the latest hotspot for the out-of-control COVID-19 epidemic with over 50,000 new infections and around 1,000 deaths per day. Um, Health researchers believe, uh, in actual fact, that the real numbers of infection are are deaths uh, are much higher due to a lack of proper testing and reporting mechanisms in Indonesia. The health system is now close to collapse, with the Indonesian government this month launching an international appeal for more oxygen supplies. The main victims of these latest waves are once again workers who are unable to stop work and quarantine due to their insecure uh, job positions and um, poverty wages. In addition, hundreds of health workers have also died from COVID-19 in the last uh, months due to a combination of overwork and stress, inadequate PPE and been exposed to constant infection episodes. And in the Philippines, Filipino union organisers are trying to evade repression. The tech and IT sectors have been traditionally hard to organise for a variety of reasons, but in the Philippines, organisers face the additional dangers of being red-tagged. Activists with the Business Process Outsourcing Industries Employees Network, that's BN, a workers' association in the Philippines, um, sorry, that's a workers' association. In the Philippines, they've uh, had to move from their houses and shut down their social media accounts due to the abuse and threats they've been receiving. In particular, activists like Mylene Cabolana fear that they have become uh, one more statistic to the already 78 human and labour rights activists who have been killed in the last year by death squads. In addition, new anti-terrorism legislation is so broad that their activism and criticism of the governments leave them exposed to criminal sanctions. Just a, a terrible situation that our comrades in the Philippines always seem to be exposed. 
Um, we now go to Palestine, where in an increasingly tense and uncertain environment, daily protests are being waged by Palestinian activists against both the Israeli occupation and dispossession, as well as the corruption and ineptness of the Palestinian Authority, or PA. The abduction and killing of uh, PA critic Nizat Banat by Palestinian security forces last month seemed to have been the catalyst for the anger and dissatisfaction to come out among Palestinians. At least 70 Palestinians have been uh, arrested by the Palestinian authorities since protests broke out in June, including many journalists. Given the political environment and the continuing Israeli occupation, the main demands of the protesters are the release of all those who have been arrested by the Palestinian Authority, an end to repression, and for the cancelled elections for the Palestinian Authority to be reinstated as soon as possible. Now to Lebanon, uh, where the crisis in that country continues to deepen. This week, in a stark example of the political crisis that Lebanon finds itself in, Lebanon Prime Minister-designate Saad Hariri stepped down on Thursday after failing to form a government, a task that he was chosen for for over eight months. The major disagreements with President Michel Aoun was over the sectarian makeup of any new government. While the various political elites continue to fight over access to resources of the state, for working-class Lebanese, the situation continues to deteriorate. The currency has lost 90% of its value in the last year. Bread prices have just been raised for the seventh time in the last 12 months. Medication stocks are down to 10% of their normal levels, while hospitals are reduced to begging the government to exempt them from electricity cuts as power, the power grid is collapsing due to insufficient funds and, and fuel. For anyone who's been to Lebanon, you would know in normal times, uh, the lights go out several times every day. So this, would, this is uh, phenomenally bad. Uh, in addition to uh, at least half of the population now is living in poverty, the investigation into the port explosion of August last year that killed more than 200 continue to proceed at a snail pace. While demonstrations are daily occurrences throughout the country, they are unable to break through the political and economic entrenched interests that are fueling this crisis. Quite, uh, quite an incredible um, ongoing story there, isn't it? Yeah, it never um, gets better. That's right, that's right. So that's the end of the Labour News Roundup for this week. Uh, listeners, it's just on 11 past 9 o'clock here on 3CR Radio and listening to Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go to a couple of community announcements and then we'll be back with our feature interview. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel, and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Australia is a crime scene. Unfinished business is crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook 
It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people have suffered greatly because the white man is not prepared to act honourably and legally. It's still the case in this country today. This is 3CR. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing As I journey back, these questions pain my thoughts Is there a place for me there in the future? A lightning flash cracks the still of night Standing there within a tall black You're listening to Community Radio 3CR. This is Asia Pacific Currents. Listeners, thank you so much for bearing with us while we were uh, sorting through those technical issues. Let me tell you, it's 17 minutes past nine o'clock and we're going to go straight into our interview with Tarnine Onus-Smith. My name is Tarnine Onus-Williams and I'm proud Gunditjmara, Bindu, Yorta Yorta and Torres Strait person and I live on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne. And I am one of Ray and Thomas's cousins. And Ray Thomas is a, an Aboriginal man who died in a police chase in 2017. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so Ray was, um, Ray lived in Thornbury um, with his mum, his dad, and his siblings, his brothers. And he went to Woolworths on Plenty Road in 
South Preston, and which is which is not far from his house, and he drove there to go get cakes, cake mix, and uh, lollies. And on the way home, he was pursued by police, um, as we found out in the inquest two weeks ago. Now, it was because his car looked dodgy in the comments, and after he was pursued, uh, he crashed into a back of a car and he died at the scene um, of that accident. And um, he had his inquest uh, just two weeks ago, which went for two weeks. And uh, his parents, Annie Debbie and Uncle Ray, were present throughout that inquest and other community members. And uh, it's taken a really long time to get this inquest up and going because of the classification um, as black death in custody. It wasn't seen as a black death in custody because it was a pursuit, so he wasn't yet uh, under arrest. And that's why it's taken so long to get his inquest heard. Well, that was, interestingly, that was my next question. A lot of people might wonder how a police chase actually got classified as a death in custody and therefore became something investigated by the coroner's court. Can you talk us through the steps or the campaign that the family took in order to really pressure the coroner's court to investigate this? From what I know, which I don't know that much and what steps they exactly took to get um that going but their legal representatives at each point Aboriginal legal service and I know there's lots of advocacy around getting it classified as a black death in black death in custody and I think that you know I think the family did a really good job in campaigning and fighting for that and they had attended multiple um rallies and spoken at those rallies about his death and I think that, you know, one of the things which I, that a lot of people didn't, haven't really realised is that Raymond Thomas died six months before Aitanya Day, um, who, sh- who died um, after being in police custody in December 2017. And her case um, and her inquest, you know, so many people know about it and we were absolutely gobsmacked that her inquest took so long in uh, because it took two years for the, the coroner to see Aitanya's case. And now we've just had Raymond Hull's inquest into his death. In 2021, when he had died uh, after a police pursuit in June 2017. And so that's, you know, appalling that's taken so long to hear and get evidence for this family um, to not have that part of closure after having a black death in custody, I think is just shameful. And, you know, there needs to be better and quicker ways to be able to have inquests for black deaths in custody because waiting so long was just so gruelling for the families. It does. Sounds, it sounds um, a, an excruciating wait for it's not even justice because the coroner hasn't handed down their findings yet. It's just that opportunity to be heard even. Mm. Uh, and in, and in it's relation- even the, 
I'll just stop being just because you know that was the it, it was gathering evidence. So I think some people don't know how the coroner's court works, and it's an in, get investigative body. And so when they have those inquests sitting, it's you're investigating to get evidence from police officers and witnesses. And so the family actually got to find out what happened in the, those final final moments of his life because they didn't know um, for the last four years what happened. Yeah. Well, is it, I mean, you mentioned a little bit of what happened in, in those final moments earlier, but do you want to talk about what the family discovered during the inquest about how that police chase ensued? Some of the things that the family found out through the inquest was um, what the state the roads were in, and I know, I know it might seem like minor details, but um, what state of the road it was in, it was, you know, like a bit wet. And we found out as well what speed the police were going in the car when they were pursuing Ray. And at one point, you know, the car got up to, to 170, I think 173 kilometres. Uh, we found out that the police don't have efficient police, um, sorry, pursuit policies as well. And there was lots of um, evidence gathering in the inquest in the second week about the police pursuits policy in Victoria Police and how it's it just doesn't have um, enough maintenance for and enough, you know, doesn't show enough grounds or like doesn't show like or tell you how and when you should start a police pursuit and I think one of the things the lawyers were working on was really trying to find out like when should you start a police pursuit and and can you start a police pursuit and like um is an unregistered vehicle grounds to start a police pursuit and I guess those aren't really that clear. And one of the things that the lawyers were doing, were talking about uh, on the lawyers, I mean, is representatives of uh, Uncle Ray and Aunt Debbie were talking about that the policies don't give Victoria Police um, officers on the ground enough information whether they should um, pursue um people or not and I think that you know in terms of minor traffic offences like you would think that you shouldn't pursue for an unregistered car so I think the family has really come out um pretty strong about not wanting police pursuits for minor this sounded a little bit worse than that because not only were they rather minor offences but there was some stereotyping Mm -hmm. as well the language you used at the earlier in the interview was that, you know, his car looked a little bit dodgy. Now that could be a class thing, you know, he just looked like a poor mm-hmm. person or exactly. he looked like a poor Aboriginal person. Was that interrogated much mm-hmm. in the inquest? So they didn't interrogate race at all in the inquest um, because with coronial inquests, they can only stay in the scope of the investigation so it really doesn't allow you to go outside of like um I can't remember what the two things were that were in the scope but it was there wasn't many questions around that 
I think in Aintanya Day's inquest, uh, like the scope for her as one of the investigative um, parts was uh, institutional racism, but because the uh, police officers couldn't identify him as being Aboriginal because they couldn't see him, um, they didn't address his race much at all. I think that, you know, also, like, I think class has definitely got a huge issue and it's been a, it's been a big part of it as well in terms of the police um, using language like there's a lot of drugs around that area. Um, so I think it's like this is the type, it shows what the type of policing that police are putting on uh, this community as well, not just black holes but um, other poor poor communities um, within Thornbury and Preston so yeah like I think judging a car and just saying that it looks dodgy or it looks like you know we're sus on this car because of there's drugs in this area but there's drugs everywhere there's drugs in South Yarra there's drugs in Kew and how did the cops respond to some of these questions and allegations during the hearing? We'll get to um, their presence in a moment, but for now, how did they answer to these allegations? I didn't attend. I wasn't there when that, the two police officers who were driving the vehicle gave evidence. I wasn't present for that. I was present for the Assistant Commissioner Murphy's evidence and she, I think that hers was definitely more like obviously around like structural stuff and like representing like the institution and its policies. And I think that it was just not the evidence that she gave, I know, was just not clear in terms of how the policies are interpreted. And the coroner, I think at some stages, was very confused uh, about some of the ways that she interpreted the pursuits policy in particular. Um, I think that the way that the family was treated uh, on, I think it was the 1st of July um, when the Assistant Commissioner Murphy attended the inquest. There was um, numerous police officers there, public order response officers to, you know, intimidate the family. And the their presence was like so violent in that they were standing at the front door of the courtroom and um, then they wait, then they got asked to leave and the magistrate said that they should not be present in inside the courthouse at all. Um, so they weren't allowed in the public order response team and they had waited outside until four o'clock until the inquest was over for the day. That was Tarnine Onus-Williams speaking about the inquest into the death following a pursuit of Raymond Noel Lindsay Thomas. Uh, and that does bring us to the end of Asia Pacific Currents for another week. Thank you very much for your endurance during the technical difficulties earlier in the show. But we are just out of time, so we're going to go straight into Palestine Remembered. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next Saturday from 9 o'clock with more Asia Pacific Currents. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.